So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 tonight, so please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We are going to go through 1 Corinthians 8 and also into chapter 9 this evening. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled and thankful that you're allowing this uh, church building, this facility to be used to invest in the lives of elementary age kids. And we just pray for real strength and refreshment upon everybody that is serving and that you would move in the lives of, of these students, Father. Show them your love, your grace, your kindness. We're comforted that you do know us and we celebrate your faithfulness in our lives that you never change. And God, would you speak to us where there needs to be breakthroughs in our lives, God, would that take place? We want to hear your voice through the pages of Scripture. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to us tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 8, it says, Now concerning the things offered to idols, we know that we have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. The church of Corinth is a real mess as we've been studying this epistle. So much encouragement to find, even though there's compromise, sin, disobedience, that God sees them as being valuable enough to invest two books of the Bible, that Paul invests his time, his life, into this church to address different issues. 1 Corinthians is really a letter of correction. It's one correction after another. Paul dealt with sexual sin. He's dealt with division. And now he's going to deal with considering others in this area of liberties where God has given us freedom. And what I mean by that is it's not something that's laid out black and white in Scripture. Most things are covered black and white in Scripture, but some things are not. And so how do you handle those particular issues? And Paul's going to teach us the most important thing is love for Christ and love for our fellow believers. To think, how is this gonna affect another believer? Their particular issue was eating things that had been offered to idols. Idolatry was so prevalent in Corinth and throughout their region that much of the meat was offered to an idol and then would be sold in, in, in the markets. And so this was a question, do I have the freedom in Christ to eat this meat that was offered to an idol or is it a compromise? And he begins by saying, we have knowledge in this area. He's really addressing the believers that already understand biblically what they're to do on this particular issue. But the problem is, is they're not using the attitude of love. So he's saying we have knowledge in this, but knowledge puffs up and love edifies, love builds up. Knowledge in and of itself tends to puff up. It tends to lead a person to this place of pride because they have now come to this place of knowledge. It's true in every facet of life, but it's also true in the things of God and theology and understanding the scriptures. And, and many times we go, okay, I understand this. So then I'm puffed up. And apart from love, knowledge does no good. I've said it a few times, but... If you have knowledge without love, you're just a porcupine. You've got a lot of powerful points, but you're not very approachable. And that knowledge, sometimes it becomes selfish instead of Christ-focused and other-centered. And so this is really the challenge of these two chapters, is do we take the knowledge of who God is 
with the love of God, with the benefit of building up others. If we're walking in the spirit of God, the knowledge that we have will be building up others. So this knowledge about the freedom that we have in Christ is gonna result in, how do I use this freedom to build up the body of Christ, build up those around me, be a testimony to those who don't know Christ? It's not a self-centered thing. It's not a self-focused thing. In our culture, we're very thankful for our freedom that we have received. And many have given their life for that freedom, but I think what we've lost in our current generation is with that freedom comes a great responsibility. You know, freedom was never intended to be just do whatever you want with no concern to anybody that's around you. There's a great cost that comes with being free that we're to use to, to build up others. And that's never more true than with Jesus Christ. Jesus gave his life in order for us to be free, but our freedom isn't, well, I'm just gonna do whatever I please, but my freedom is then there's a responsibility to honor Christ and build up those who are around me. There's a good challenge in verse one, is the knowledge that I have about the Lord resulting in building up others. In verse two, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. God's word has a way of humbling us. If you think you have mastered some topic of the things of the Lord or the things of life, well, you're limiting yourself because you don't know as much as you think you know. How does this work? Maybe you feel like, man, I've, I've got the rap on apologetics. I know how to defend my faith. All of a sudden, then you've cut off the avenue of learning of how to grow in that area. I've got evangelism figured out. I've got that all wrapped up. Then all of a sudden, I've shut myself off of learning new things that God would want to teach me and reaching out to those who who don't know the Lord. Oh, I've got marriage all figured out, you know. I've got knowledge in, in this matter. That kind of pride then closes us off from learning that what God would have to teach us. And so if you think you know something, if you think you know anything, Scripture tells us you, you don't know as much as you think you may know. In verse 3, but if anyone loves God, this one, this one is known by him. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So we don't know as much as we think we know, but we are known by God. He knows everything about us. If you love God, tonight if you're the child of God, if you love the Lord, then guess what? He knows you. He knows you. Psalms 139, type of knowledge. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows the words before you speak them. And that's really comforting, but it's really more convicting than comforting. Come on, let's be honest, right? Oh, no, Lord, you know my thoughts before I even think them. You know, you, you know all the words that I say, even before I say them. You know the words that I'm about to say that I don't end up saying. Oh, you know, and yet he still loves us. That's the amazing thing, that he has all this knowledge. You know, if you really knew me, you would run for your life. If I really knew you, I would run from my life, right? And God really knows us, and he loves us. It's amazing. He knows us. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He thinks about us more than the sands of the sea. We're known by God. What a comforting and convicting truth. And verse 4, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one God. This is the knowledge piece. This is the knowledge portion. So if a piece of meat is offered to an idol, 
it's no big deal because the idol's nothing. There's no substance to that idol. They're not God. They're not a deity. It's just a piece of stone. So what's the big deal if that meat was offered to an idol? Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him and the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. These idols are nothing, but God is everything. What does verse 6 tell us about God? There's one God, one Father, one Lord. And through him we live, and through him all things have come into being. I know you know this, but what an amazing truth of your heavenly Father. That God's your Father. That, that's who he is. That's the way we relate to him. We're his sons. We're, we're his daughters. He gave us life. He's brought all things into existence. He's the creator He's our source. He's our originator. This year particularly, this summer, such a beautiful summer in, in Colorado. If you haven't gotten up into the mountains yet, it's worth it. Invest the gas money. Invest the time. Drive west. And we live so close. One hour drive. Go up to the bike, backside of Pikes Peak, anywhere. It's so green. There's so much water. It's so beautiful. God is declaring, hey, I love you. This, this is my goodness. This, I'm the creator. I'm the origin of, of everything. If you've never seen the Colorado night sky and never seen the stars, you've got to get out there and enjoy it. It's not the same as Colorado Springs. You look up through all of the, the pollution and you see like 10 stars and you're like, that's nice. Those 10 stars are pretty cool. There's more than 10 stars that are out there. I grew up in a small town in southern Oregon in the summers. It was hot, and you could lay out in the backyard. A lot of times we just roll out a sleeping bag, and the, the stars were awesome. They were amazing. They were, they were, they were beautiful. And, and we can forget in our little tunnel world of pavement that how awesome our, our creator is. Get out and enjoy God's creation. He's created all things, and then through him we live. He, he's the one that's the source of our current life and our current existence. In verse 7 However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Many people come into no Christ as their Savior. They're coming out of a background of idolatry, coming out of this place of worshiping idols and presenting this meat to what they thought was to be a god, and then they go to cut into a filet mignon that's been offered to an idol, and it brings back all of that imagery of false worship, and their conscience is pricked. And they don't understand that the idol is nothing. And they think that this piece of meat has actually been offered to some god and, and some, some deity. And so what Paul's teaching is, even though you have the freedom to do this, you have to keep in mind somebody who stumbled in this way because of their background, because they don't have this knowledge yet. In verse 8, but food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we better nor, if we do not eat, are we worse. There's some freedom right there. It's not a food issue to God. God's not near as concerned as what goes in the mouth as to what goes out of the mouth flowing from the heart. It's a heart issue with God. So it, 
again, the idol is nothing, but also God's not concerned with food. He's concerned with the heart. But beware lest someone, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. And this is the lesson of these two chapters. So you have the knowledge, you have the freedom, but be careful that you don't stumble somebody else who doesn't have that freedom, who doesn't have that liberty. Take into account the conscience of someone who is weak. In verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be, be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? So you're a believer in the Corinthian church, and you're going to go to a pagan temple and eat a steak. Paul's saying you've got freedom to do that because the idol's nothing. It's not an issue of what you put into your body. It's what comes out of your heart. But here's somebody that's in your church, and they see you in their eating, and they don't understand these spiritual truths yet, and they're stumbled. And that's the person that you have to take into account. And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Meditate upon that for just a minute. So you have this knowledge, and it's right knowledge. It's the knowledge that you have this freedom in Christ. But it, the knowledge is not used appropriately. It's not used with the attitude of love. So it results in the destruction of a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And then we have this strong warning from the Lord. It says, whom Christ died. Is this how we see one another? Do we see the body of Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ for whom Christ died? Let's be honest, we don't always see each other this way. Our culture, if you haven't noticed, is very individualistic. We really have a garage door type of society. We do our lives, we close our garage door, we go into our homes. We're really not forced to give much thought to, to other people. And if you're not careful, you can bring that into your Christian life. I can bring that into my Christian life. Jesus and me. Jesus in me. Jesus is great. Jesus in me. I'm coming to church because I want to draw near to the Lord, and I've got such blinders on that I don't even take time to consider who else is sitting around me. I mean, it can get so self-focused that it's like, well, I don't like this song. Well, maybe that song's not for you. Maybe it's for the person that's five rows back that's really getting ministered to. But when I'm in the flesh, I don't think about that. All I think about is Jesus and me, you know, Jesus and me. And, and they didn't pick the song that, that I liked. Well, wait, wait a second. I'm not the only person in the room, right? But we, but we forget about that, don't we? We just, we just put, our, put our blinders on. And then we take it a step further to the liberties that we have in the Lord. And have we ever stopped to think about, okay, I'm, I'm watching this movie at the movie theater, and I've got liberty to watch that movie. I, I have peace with the Lord. But how does that then translate to someone who is sitting behind me that goes to RMC as well, and are they being stumbled over my movie choice? And so you can start to apply this to different areas of your life. You know, we see one of these issues as being the drinking of alcohol. What does the Bible say about alcohol? You know, and that, that's really controversial, but as I read it, what the Bible clearly says is two things. Don't be drunk with wine, and don't cause your brother or sister to stumble. So if you're inside of those two things, you're in a good place with the Lord. 
And some people have a conviction to not drink at all. And some people have a conviction to drink in moderation. Some people have a conviction to drink in drunkenness. (laughs) And that's absolutely wrong. That's sin. Do not be drunk with wine. You can't justify that with the Lord. So if you have that freedom in the Lord to drink in moderation and self-control, do you ever stop to consider how does this affect somebody who's really stumbled over the issue of alcohol? Maybe drunkenness is their issue. Maybe they've been tripped up with alcoholism and they see you and they go, oh, you know what? That brother or sister in Christ has the freedom to to drink, so so I'm just going to go ahead and drink. And before you know it, it leads them right down a road of drunkenness. So we've got to stop and consider, you know, how does this affect someone else? There's a, a testimony that, that I heard that's always stayed with me of a young, young lady that got saved, and she got saved out of a really difficult background. Lots of drugs, lots of alcohol, unsaved family, and just her life was a complete mess, and she came to know Christ. And she knew in her heart, man, drinking's not for me because of my past. But right away, she started hanging out with a group of believers that enjoyed drinking and encouraged her, hey, just come on and drink. You can do that, and it's fine in your relationship with Christ without considering and even taking the time to get to know her. And she slipped back into drugs, back into alcohol, not moderation. Her life flipped out of control. Eventually, she came back to the Lord, but I wouldn't want to be responsible for leading that young lady back into sin not even taking the time to get to know where she's at and where she's coming from and just saying, hey, come along, let's have some beers, you know? Let's, it's great, let's talk about the things of the Lord. Again, you may have the freedom to do that, but you don't know where this person is coming from. You don't know what their struggle is and, and what they're, they're going through. There's a lot there to think through and pray through, And the principle is how much do we value this person in Christ? In verse 12 and 13, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So if we wound someone's weak conscience, even though from a knowledge perspective, there's freedom in the Lord with this, we're actually sinning against Christ. Wow, we're sinning against Christ. In verse 13, therefore, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That's a pretty big sacrifice. Come on, let's be honest. No, I'm just joking, you know, but, well, okay, maybe I'm a little bit serious. (laughs) But Paul says, man, I'll go, I'll be a vegetarian. You know, if me eating meat caused my brother to stumble, I I would give up meat all altogether. So he's really giving us this understanding. You do have freedom in Christ to eat meat offered to idols, but what's even more important is how is this edifying the the body of Christ? Chapter 9 goes along with the same theme as Paul discovers his own personal liberties and how he sacrificed those for the gospel's sake. In verse 1, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Rhetorical questions, the answer is yes. Paul had seen the Lord. God had revealed himself to him as he was on the road to to Damascus. He called him by name. No doubt he's an apostle. No doubt he's free in Christ. In verse two, if I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 
The church of Corinth was founded through Paul's work, the power of the Holy Spirit working in Paul's life. And he's saying, you're the seal of my apostleship. Leadership, the evidence of leadership is when someone follows and has been impacted. Leadership is not just receiving a title. Here's the apostle Paul. Paul was an apostle because of the spiritual impact that he had had upon communities. In verse three, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do others apostle, other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So Paul right here, he mentions a gamut of freedoms that he has in the Lord. He has freedoms to, to eat and drink. He has freedom to have a bacon cheeseburger. He has freedom in Christ in, in these areas. He has freedom in Christ to be married, to be married to a believing wife. He, he was single. Other apostles were, were married. Peter is listed here as, as being married. He has the privilege, as we'll read, to receive financial gifts from the church for his spiritual labor, but these are all liberties that Paul was willing to lay down freedoms that he was willing to sacrifice for the work of the Lord. So Paul's not asking us to do something that he himself is not already doing. Verse seven, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and doesn't drink of the milk of the flock? You ever go to war at your own expense? No, it's at the expense of governments. Governments are the ones that that fund that, that war. Do you plant a vineyard and not eat its fruit? You plant a garden and do not enjoy its fruit? If you have a flock, do you not have milk from the flock? In verse eight, do I say all of these things as mere men or does not the law say the same also? So Paul's saying, I do have this liberty to receive a wage from my spiritual labor. It makes sense from man's terms but is it in the word of God? And so he goes back to Deuteronomy. For it is not written in the law of Moses, you have not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is not the oxen God is concerned about? So he's saying, look, even a, an ox that's laboring, you make sure it gets fed and cared for. So Paul's saying I'm laboring spiritually. There is a, a physical responsibility there. In verse 10, or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. If we've sown spiritual things to you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we've not used this right but we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul refused to take a salary from the churches that he ministered to. He chose to work with his hands. He chose to be a tent maker. He was a self-sufficient missionary. It was his personal conviction because he didn't want to hinder the work of the gospel. That's what the Lord had put, put upon his heart. So Paul takes a lot of time in this letter to deal with this area of personal liberties. He must have really touched a chord on the church of Corinth. It's like, okay, you know, you can talk about all these issues, Paul, but when you start 
messing with the hamburgers and the filet mignon. Back off, buddy. And uh-uh, I like that right there. Don't be messing with that. Those, those Christians should figure out that that idol's nothing and it's half price after it's been offered to an idol. I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to care for my brother or sister in Christ. So this kind of gives you the idea of the spiritual condition of the church of Corinth. You know, if a movie or a beverage is more important to me than a brother or sister in Christ, something's wrong there, right? If a steak is more important than a brother or sister in Christ, that there's some, something wrong there. And so, so Paul has to dig deep here and go into his personal life and his personal story and say, look, guys, these are some things that I've chosen to surrender. I have the biblical right to be able to do this, but I've chosen not to so that the gospel wouldn't be hindered. In verse 13, do you not know those who minister the holy things, eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the altar, so partake of the offerings of the altar? Going back to the Old Testament, the priests had the right to receive from the offerings that were given to the Lord. Obviously, Hophni and Phinehas that we've been studying in 1 Samuel, they abused that right, but there was that right that was given. In verse 14, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die that anyone should make my boasting void. In verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul's saying, look, I gave up this freedom, this right that I have in the Lord to receive physical gifts from the church of Corinth for the sake of the gospel. I didn't want to do anything to hinder the gospel. I didn't want anybody to, to take this privilege from me because this is a burden that God has placed upon me to preach the gospel, to, to share the, the good news. And I know personally, as I read of Paul's life and his letters, I'm always challenged by his heart for the lost and his willingness to surrender things unto the Lord that people could be one to Jesus Christ. When it comes to this area of surrendering liberties to the Lord, it shouldn't be heavy-handed legalism that's coming from a, pa a pastor pounding the pulpit. This is what you gotta do, and pound, pound, pound. It should be something that the Spirit lays upon you, that it's a burden that comes from the Lord. I know I have freedom in Christ to do this, and maybe for a season in my life I really enjoyed it, but right now I'm walking alongside this new believer that doesn't understand these things, so I'm really burdened to lay that down. I'm really burdened to, to not make that a part of my life. Or God just shows you, you know what? That's not for you. That's not for you on this side of eternity. I want you to just let it go. It's not what I have for you. It, you're gonna be more of an effective witness if you lay down this freedom. See how that's a work from the Holy Spirit? God knows the people that you're involved with. There were other men that chose to receive this right, and they weren't placed with this burden from the Lord, but Paul was, and so he had to walk in that. And we've gotta understand when it comes to these areas of freedoms that our relationship with the Lord is not gonna all look the same. Peter was married, and. Loved being married, the Apostle Peter, but Paul wasn't. 
He didn't have that conviction to be married. Paul and Peter's walk with the Lord wasn't to look exactly the same. And that's the way that it is from the Lord. I think this is why God has left these areas in scripture this way because we have to seek him for the details. He doesn't want carbon copy Christians. He doesn't want us all to make the same decisions on these issues and we shouldn't judge one another when we choose to live these out, but we should always look to edify one another. Say, you know, the big picture here is am I building up other brothers and sisters in Christ? Is this a good testimony of the gospel? In verse 17, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward, but if against my will, I've been entrusted with stewardship. Paul's saying, I've done this willingly. I wasn't coerced. I wasn't manipulated. Someone didn't put this burden uh, upon me. But I did this out of a willing heart where God touched me. You know, sometimes this even plays out in marriages. You know, a husband and wife may have some different convictions in these areas of freedoms. Hey, guess what? That's okay. You don't have to beat each other up. You know, you don't have to go, well, your convictions have to be my convictions, and you don't really love the Lord. Let Scripture decide that. If they're disobeying the word of God, absolutely. You know, but maybe your, your husband really likes to play cards and you're convicted to not play cards. Guess what? You're not more spiritual than your husband. I don't care what anybody says. There's nothing in the Bible about that that says thou shall not play cards. There's nothing in the Bible that say cards lead to gambling. It's just not there, you know? And there's nothing there that says that, you know, ballroom dancing leads to sex. It's just not there, you know? You have freedom in the Lord where you could ballroom dance with your spouse if you're married, you know? But hey, your, your spouse likes to play cards. Let him play cards. You're convicted not to play cards? That's okay. You don't have to judge each other. You don't have to beat each other up. You're living out the word of God. This is willing sacrifices that we make because God has spoken to our hearts because we've been entrusted with the gospel. In verse 18, what is my reward then? Then when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Paul's heart is he's saying, I don't want to have to charge anybody to be able to come and minister the gospel to them. So I'm going to be a tent maker. I'm going to provide for my own needs so that it's not finances that are keeping me from coming to these communities. You know, Paul didn't say, look, here's all my costs to come to this city Go ahead and send me that money in advance, and then I'll come. He just wanted to go where the Spirit led him, and he was freed up to be able to minister because God had used tent making to provide for for his ministry. I hope that you don't adopt this view that ministry, which just means a servant of the Lord, is only found inside of paid positions of the church and paid positions of Christian nonprofit organizations. Because if that's your view, then Paul was never in the ministry. (laughs) And God maybe has blessed you through a business endeavor, through a job, and that job is going to be the means to take you to places like Corinth where you're going to proclaim the gospel. And your job's funding it. Your tent making is funding it. And even more and more now in the area of missions, there's this conversation of businesses' missions, that a business actually gets you into some of these closed countries. You don't have to spend all this time raising support. 
and you have an opportunity to share the gospel. Not that there's anything wrong with raising support or not that there's anything wrong with receiving a, a wage a, on a church staff position, but it's not the only way that God works. You're just as much a missionary in the school that you teach in. You're just as much a missionary in the place that you do accounting. You're just as much a missionary in the convenience store that you work at, the grocery store that you work at. Do you see how that, all that works out? And that's how Paul viewed this. Is, is he says, I don't want to put the charge on the gospel. And I think that that should be our heart as well as a church family. When, when we're doing gospel outreach, we shouldn't charge people for it. If the gospel is being presented, I personally don't think you need to be paying $15 to get in to hear the gospel. And when, when the gospel is being presented and we're inviting in the lost community, they should be able to come in and hear the gospel for free. Don't you agree? That, that was the heart of the apostle Paul. You know, that's one of the reasons we don't take a, a church offering here. There's offering boxes for those that feel led to give. That's between you and the Lord. But a lot of people say, oh, I'm not coming to church because what? The first thing they do is they ask for my money. Well, that's not going to happen here. Hopefully the first thing that you're going to hear is that Jesus loves you, that he died for you, that he's not interested in your money. God's not broke. He's able to provide for his work. We don't have to charge people for, for the gospel. In verse 19, for though I'm free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. Wow. Paul's saying, I have so much freedom. I can eat filet mignon with the best of them. I know that I can eat meat that's offered to an idol. But I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. Being a servant of Christ means being a servant of all. Oh, God, I love you. I want to serve you, but I just don't like people. <laughs> Those two don't go together. God's saying, if you love me, you'll love people, and you'll seek to be a servant of all. There's something in the scriptures that's called basin theology. And what that means is being willing to wash feet like Jesus did, a basin. He took a, a bowl and he washed the disciples' feet, including Jesus. But there's another basin in the scriptures, and it's Pilate. And what did Pilate do? He washed his hands of Jesus Christ. And we can come across real needs in people's lives, real needs in the church of God, real needs in our neighborhoods, real needs in our workplace, and what do we do? We can wash our hands, just like Pilate. This is somebody else's problem. I don't have to deal with this. Or we, like Jesus, can take up a bowl, take up a basin, take up a towel, and just begin to meet a need. And Paul saw himself as a servant of the Lord. And this is how this worked out in the next few verses. He says, and to the Jews I became a Jew, that I may win the Jews. To those who are under the law is under the law, that I may win those who are under the law. Paul knew his audience. This is really important in sharing the word and sharing the gospel is take into account who you're speaking to and where they're coming from. What's their background? If Paul was coming into a Jewish community, he would place himself under the law, not because he needed to for salvation or sanctification, but because he wanted to win them to Christ. He knew that if he sat down and had a pork chop with a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, that would wreck all opportunities to share that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. So he's like, forget the pork chop. I'm having kosher. This is, I'm willing to do this for the opportunity 
to share Christ with them. And then he goes on to mention a few more groups. And to those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. So if he's coming to Gentiles, they don't have the law. They don't have the background in the Old Testament scriptures. So Paul would come to them with a Gentile mindset and preach Christ to them. And in that context, he would probably have some bacon because Gentiles enjoy bacon. And so he's like, all right, pig roast, I'm there. Let's do this, you know? And he would enjoy that and he would use that as a bridge and opportunity to share Christ. And he mentions one more group. To the weak, I become as weak, that I may win the weak. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And in context of chapter eight, who's the weak? The weak is the person that has that conscience that is pricked over eating the meat offered to idol. They haven't yet come to the knowledge that would set them free. So Paul says, I'm gonna be weak so I don't stumble them. I'm not gonna go eat meat that's offered to idols. They haven't come to that understanding yet. So I'm gonna set that liberty aside so I can win some to Christ. What is Paul saying and what is he not saying? By no means is Paul advocating, prescribing, commanding that we would compromise to win people to Jesus Christ. He didn't say that I started sinning to win sinners. He's saying I took in mind their culture, their beliefs, and I sought to build a bridge and minister to them in that context and was careful that I didn't offend them. But Paul didn't go among Jews and start saying, look, the law saves you. Yep, this kosher diet, that that saves you. These feasts, that saves you. He was willing to do the kosher diet, not to then say salvation comes through the kosher diet, but by a means to tell him, hey guys, you know what, there's a freedom in Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things. He didn't come into the Gentiles and go, oh, everybody's sleeping around, so I'm gonna start sleeping around so that I can tell them about Jesus Christ. And a lot of people have interpreted this section of scripture that way, and it's an abuse of scripture. Jesus was the friend of sinners. We need to be friends with sinners. We need to be around sinners and share the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus came for the broken. We're broken. But Jesus never compromised. Never, Jesus never started sinning. In fact, he called them to a place of, of repentance. And it's a very slippery slope, but we've got to keep that in mind. So Paul's not saying that this is a commandment to start compromising, but he is saying, take the time to get to know the person that God has placed in front of you. How enjoyable is it even when you go to the doctor and the doctor has no time for you, you're just another number, and he crams down the solution in your throat in 10, 15 minutes, and then it's like, oh, on to the next one. I love those doctors that will sit down and rap with you for a little bit, that will take the time to get to know you a little bit. There's a doctor in this community in Colorado Springs that I've gone to see for a lot of years, and I won't mention his name, but I really enjoy him. And there was, it was probably like eight or nine years ago. I'm in the doctor's office, and 
you know, I've gone to see him since I moved here 15 years ago, and he just looks at me, and he goes, Eric, you seem like you're under a lot of stress. And he just starts rapping with me for a while. And I was in there because I had some nasty cold, and there was like, like neon green coming out of my nose and stuff. And he, he wasn't talking about all that. He's like, I don't think you're doing very good in life. Like, you know, and he knew I just started senior pastoring, and he's like, you should probably chill out a little bit. And he gave me some just man-to-man advice. He, he took some time to get into my world and care about me as a person. And I think sometimes as Christians, we're like, well, I'm just going to shove the solution down their throat. On to the next one, you know? Man, don't ever lose your heart to preach the gospel. But maybe it would be wise to sit and listen for five minutes before we spoke. Lord, give me understanding into this person. What are they really about? What's their Jewishness? What's their Gentileness? Where's their weakness? And where where have they been hurt by the people of God? Just what are they about? Holy Spirit, show me. God, what what are you doing in their life? What's what's the angle that you would have for me to to speak to them? Really care for them as as a person. And that's what Paul took the time to do. And in the midst of that, preach the gospel. So there's a balance there. We don't want to leave out the gospel. Sometimes we can be in a relationship with someone for 20 years and we've never told them the gospel. The bridge was built 15 years ago. (laughs) You know, the bridge was built 19 years ago. But we we haven't had the boldness to, to share Christ with them. But then other times we don't take time to really get to know them and to try to come like them so that we can preach the gospel to them. In verse 23, now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be partaker of it with you. Paul makes this sacrifice of becoming like the Jews and the Gentiles for the gospel's sake, becoming like all men. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. The theme of Vacation Bible School this week is fun run. It's, it's the run that God has called us to. Right outside the sanctuary doors is the finish line. So after you take communion tonight, you can think of this verse. Run in such a way to win. The Greek culture was fascinated with the Olympic Games. They understood that there was one who won the prize. And what Paul is now saying is he's really wrapping up this section about liberties and the way that we live our lives. And he's saying, you know, live your life in such a way that you win the prize. So what's the prize? That God is glorified and people come to know Jesus Christ. It's not just about my freedom. It's not just about my enjoyments. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. And so, okay, God, how can I glorify you? And how can my life be a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We want to run to win the prize. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. So we run to win, but we also run with self-control. Self-control. Temperate. Self-restraint. If you're going to compete in the Olympic Games, you have to compete according to the rules. I just found out that in the sprints in the Olympic Games, they changed the rules. It's already in place. It was always already like this at the last summer games, that the sprinters 
cannot make any false starts. If you make a false start, one false start as a sprinter, you are disqualified. You could spend your whole life training to be an Olympic sprinter, all out, and you're at that moment, and you do, you're not temperate. You don't have self-restraint. You just get a little bit too excited. Oh, bam, you're done. You're disqualified. The amount of self-restraint, power under control that, that it would take, and, and this was what Paul is saying, and he's encouraging, he's saying, we need this in our lives so that we can have a crown that's imperishable. Everything on this side of heaven will perish. It's gonna go. But our relationship with Christ and our relationship with others in Christ is gonna be eternal. To hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. To have Christ to give you a crown for your faithfulness that you can lay back at the feet of Jesus. God, give us a vision of that crown. Paul referred to people that had come to Christ as being his crown. It's going to be awesome to stand around the throne room of God and go, wow, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for allowing me to have an internal impact on on that person's life. If you're wanting to leave legacy, win people to Christ, because all this is going to burn. All of it's going to go. Houses are going to go. Governments are going to go. Countries are going to go. It's all going to go. And not that we shouldn't invest in our country, but guess what? We would be spiritually bankrupt if we invested in everything and we never won a soul to Christ. God never used us to touch someone's life for all of eternity. We want those crowns that won't perish. Verse 26 and 27, Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. Do you feel like your life lacks focus? It lacks certainty. It lacks purpose. There's a void there. This passage is for us. It's for us. Paul says, I know what my goal is when I wake up in the morning, to know Jesus and to make him known, to love him, to look for those people that don't know Christ as their Savior, to disciple people, to pour my life into them. There was that certainty. All right, God, I'm on mission with you. This, this is what you have created me for. And because of this mission, he says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul says, I'm not like a fighter who just beats into the air. A boxer's very precise with his punches, and Paul lived his life with certainty, and he disciplined his body. He put his body under the control of the Holy Spirit instead of his body being under the control of the flesh. The spiritual life takes discipline, church. To run to win means that sometimes we need to do things that we don't feel like doing. If people tell you, you know, I always feel like reading my Bible, they're probably lying to you. Because the honest truth is, there's all times, we all have times where we don't feel like reading the Bible. So does that mean we don't read God's word? No, that's when we discipline the body. Say, body, flesh, you're not in control. I need to get into the word. I'll be honest with you, prayer does not come natural to me. Being a space cadet comes natural to me. I go to pray and I think about all the things I need to do and all the things I want to eat. Those two things, you know? 
It's hard to pray. I've got to discipline my body to, to pray. I, I very easily lose sight of God's mission of the lost. I've got to discipline myself to come back to what God's, God's priority is. The discipline is important. I've heard it said this way. A lot of times we go from duty to discipline to delight. And then eventually it goes back to duty and involves some more discipline and then it gets to delight. And we go through these seasons in our relationship with the Lord. All right, it's duty right now. And then eventually it goes to discipline. And then eventually it goes to delight. And that's kind of the way it goes for exercise for me. Oh man, I better get some exercise. It's probably important. It's, it's duty. And then it moves to some discipline. Uh, it's, eh, it's all right. And then there's like those few days where it actually feels good. Like, oh man, this feels great. And then I slack off. And then it goes right back to duty. You got to start all over again, right? And we'd be lying if there wasn't those different seasons in our relationship with the Lord. I leave you with this tonight. It's by Charles Spurgeon. It says, there are no crown wearers in heaven who were not Christ's cross bearers here below. I'll read that one more time. There are no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers here below. So let's stand together and let's pray. Father, what a great passage of scripture. Lord, forgive us for not being concerned with one another, for not being concerned for our brother and sister in Christ. Would you help us to lay down liberties, to build up believers, to win people to Jesus Christ? God, would you help our lives to have lasting impact? Would you bless this time of communion? In Jesus' name, amen.